Mao represented a society that over the centuries had been the largest, best organized, and in the Chinese view at least, most beneficent political institution in the world. That its performance would have a vast international impact was received wisdom. When a Chinese ruler appealed to his people to work hard so that they could become the greatest people in the world, he was exhorting them to reclaim a preeminence that in the Chinese interpretation of history had been only recently and temporarily misplaced. Such a country inevitably found it impossible to play the role of junior partner. In societies based on ideology, the right to define legitimacy becomes crucial. Mao, who described himself as a teacher to the journalist Edgar Snow, and thought of himself as a significant philosopher, would never concede intellectual leadership of the communist world. China's claim to a right to define orthodoxy threatened the cohesion of Moscow's empire and opened the door to other largely national interpretations of Marxism. What started as irritations over nuances of interpretation transformed into disputes over practice and theory and eventually turned into actual military clashes. The People's Republic began by modeling its economy on Soviet economic policies of the 1930s and 1940s. In 1952, Zhou went so far as to visit Moscow for advice regarding the first Chinese five-year plan. Stalin sent his comments in early 1953, urging Beijing to adopt a more balanced approach and temper its planned rate of economic growth to no more than 13 to 14 percent annually. But by December 1955, Mao openly distinguished the Chinese economy from its Soviet counterpart, and enumerated the unique and great challenges that the Chinese had faced and overcome, in contrast to their Soviet allies. We had 20 years' experience in the base areas, and were trained in three revolutionary wars. Our experience on coming to power was exceedingly rich; therefore, we were able to set up a state very quickly. And complete the tasks of the revolution. The Soviet Union was a newly established state at the time of the October Revolution. They had neither army nor government apparatus, and there were very few party members. Our population is very numerous, and our position is excellent. Our people work industriously and bear much hardship. Consequently, we can reach socialism more, better, and faster. In an April 1956 speech on economic policy, Mao transformed a practical difference into a philosophical one. He defined China's path to socialism as unique and superior to that of the Soviet Union. We have done better than the Soviet Union and a number of Eastern European countries. The prolonged failure of the Soviet Union to reach the highest pre-October Revolution level in grain output. The grave problems arising from the glaring disequilibrium between the development of heavy industry and that of light industry in some Eastern European countries, such problems do not exist in our country. Differences between Chinese and Soviet conceptions of their practical imperatives turned into an ideological clash when, in February 1956. 
Khrushchev addressed the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and denounced Stalin for a series of crimes, several of which he detailed. Khrushchev's speech convulsed the communist world. Decades of experience had been based on ritualistic affirmations of Stalin's infallibility, including in China where, whatever qualms Mao may have had about Stalin's conduct as an ally, he formally acknowledged his special ideological contribution. Deepening the insult, non-Soviet delegates, including Chinese delegates, were not permitted in the hall when Khrushchev delivered his speech, and Moscow declined to provide even its fraternal allies with an authoritative text. Beijing cobbled together its initial response based on Chinese delegates' incomplete notes of a second-hand version of Khrushchev's remarks. Eventually, the Chinese leadership was forced to rely on Chinese translations of reports from the New York Times. Beijing lost little time in assailing Moscow for having discarded the sword of Stalin. The Chinese Titoism that Stalin had feared from the beginning raised its head in the form of a Chinese defense of the ideological importance of Stalin's legacy. Mao branded Khrushchev's de-Stalinization initiative a form of revisionism, a new ideological insult, which implied that the Soviet Union was moving away from communism and back toward its bourgeois past. To restore a measure of unity, Khrushchev assembled a conference of socialist countries in Moscow in 1957. Mao attended. It was only the second time that he had left China, and it was to be his last sojourn abroad. The Soviet Union had just launched Sputnik, the first orbiting satellite, and the meeting was dominated by the belief, shared then by many in the West, that Soviet technology and power were ascendant. Mao adopted this notion, declaring pungently that the East Wind now prevailed over the West Wind. But he drew from the apparent relative decline of American power a conclusion uncomfortable for his Soviet allies. Namely, that China was in an increasingly strong position to assert its autonomy. Their real purpose, Mao later told his doctor, is to control us. They're trying to tie our hands and feet, but they're full of wishful thinking, like idiots talking about their dreams. In the meantime, the 1957 conference in Moscow reaffirmed Khrushchev's call for the socialist bloc to strive for peaceful coexistence with the capitalist world, a goal first adopted at the same 1956 Congress at which Khrushchev delivered his secret speech criticizing Stalin. In a startling rebuke to Khrushchev's policy, Mao used the occasion to call his socialist colleagues to arms in the struggle against imperialism including his standard speech on China's imperviousness to nuclear destruction. We shouldn't fear war, he declared. We shouldn't be afraid of atomic bombs and missiles. No matter what kind of war breaks out, conventional or thermonuclear, we'll win. As for China, if the imperialists unleash war on us, we may lose more than 300 million people. So what? War is war. The years will pass, and we'll get to work producing more babies than ever before.
Khrushchev found the speech deeply disturbing, and he recalled the audience's strained and nervous laughter as Mao described nuclear Armageddon in whimsical and earthy language. After the speech, the Czechoslovak communist leader Antonin Novotny complained, What about us? We have only 12 million people in Czechoslovakia. We'd lose every last soul in a war. There wouldn't be anyone left to start over again. China and the Soviet Union now were engaged in constant, frequently public controversies. Yet they were also still formal allies. Khrushchev seemed convinced that the restoration of comradely relations awaited only some new Soviet initiative. He did not understand, or if he did, would not admit to himself, that his policy of peaceful coexistence, especially when coupled with pronouncements of the fear of nuclear war, was in Mao's eyes incompatible with the Sino-Soviet alliance. For Mao was convinced that in a crisis, fear of nuclear war would trump loyalty to the ally. In these circumstances, Mao missed no opportunity to assert Chinese autonomy. In 1958, Khrushchev proposed, via the Soviet ambassador in Beijing, the building of a radio station in China to communicate with Soviet submarines and to help build submarines for China in return for the use of Chinese ports by the Soviet Navy. Since China was a formal ally, and the Soviet Union had supplied it with much of the technology to improve its own military capacities, Khrushchev apparently thought Mao would welcome the offer. He was proved disastrously wrong. Mao reacted furiously to the initial Soviet proposals, berating the Soviet ambassador in Beijing and causing such alarm in Moscow that Khrushchev traveled to Beijing to assuage his allies' wounded pride. Once in Beijing, however, Khrushchev made an even less appealing follow-up proposal, which was to offer China special access to Soviet submarine bases in the Arctic Ocean in exchange for Soviet use of China's warm-water ports in the Pacific. No, Mao replied. We won't agree to that either. Every country should keep its armed forces on its own territory and on no one else's. As the chairman recalled, we've had the British and other foreigners on our territory for years now, and we're not ever going to let anyone use our land for their own purposes again. In a normal alliance, disagreements on a specific issue would usually lead to increased efforts to settle differences on the remaining agenda. During Khrushchev's calamitous 1958 visit to Beijing, it provided an occasion for a seemingly endless catalogue of complaints by both sides. Khrushchev put himself at a disadvantage to begin with by blaming the dispute about naval bases on an unauthorized demarche by his ambassador. Mao, only too familiar with the way communist states were organized, with a strict separation of military and civilian channels, easily saw through the utter inconceivability of that proposition. The recital of the sequence of events led to an extended dialogue in which Mao lured Khrushchev into ever more humiliating and absurd propositions, the point probably being made to demonstrate for Chinese cadres 
the unreliability of the leader who had presumed to challenge Stalin's image. It also provided Mao with an opportunity to convey how deeply Moscow's overbearing conduct had cut. Mao complained about Stalin's condescending behavior during his visit to Moscow in the winter of 1949-50. Mao, after the victory of our revolution, Stalin had doubts about its character. He believed that China was another Yugoslavia. Khrushchev, yes, he considered it possible. Mao, when I came to Moscow in December 1949, he did not want to conclude a treaty of friendship with us and did not want to annul the old treaty with the Guomindang. I recall that Soviet interpreter Nikolai Fedorenko and Stalin's emissary to the People's Republic, Ivan Kovalev, passed me his, Stalin's, advice to take a trip around the country, to look around. But I told them that I have only three tasks, eat, sleep, and shit. I did not come to Moscow only to congratulate Stalin on his birthday. Therefore, I said that if you do not want to conclude a treaty of friendship, so be it. I will fulfill my three tasks. The mutual needling quickly went beyond history into contemporary disputes. When Khrushchev asked Mao if the Chinese really considered the Soviets red imperialists, Mao made clear how much the quid pro quo for the alliance had rankled. It is not a matter of red or white imperialists. There was a man by the name of Stalin who took Port Arthur and turned Xinjiang and Manchuria into semi-colonies, and he also created four joint companies. These were all his good deeds. Still, whatever Mao's complaints on a national basis, he respected Stalin's ideological contribution. Khrushchev, you defended Stalin and you criticized me for criticizing Stalin, and now vice versa. Mao, you criticized him for different matters. Khrushchev, at the party congress I spoke about this as well. Mao, I always said, now and then in Moscow, that the criticism of Stalin's mistakes is justified. We only disagree with the lack of strict limits to criticism. We believe that out of Stalin's ten fingers, three were rotten ones. Mao set the tone of the next day's meeting by receiving Khrushchev not in a ceremonial room, but in his swimming pool. Khrushchev, who could not swim, was obliged to wear water wings. The two statesmen conversed while swimming, with the interpreters following them up and down the side of the pool. Khrushchev would later complain, it was Mao's way of putting himself in an advantageous position. Well, I got sick of it. I crawled out, sat on the edge, and dangled my legs in the pool. Now I was on top, and he was swimming below. Relations had deteriorated even further a year later, when Khrushchev stopped in Beijing on his return trip from the United States to brief his fractious ally on October 3, 1959, on his summit with Eisenhower. The Chinese leaders already highly suspicious about Khrushchev's American sojourn, were further agitated when Khrushchev took the side of India with respect to the first border clashes in the Himalayas between Indian and Chinese forces that had just occurred. Khrushchev, whose strong suit was not diplomacy, managed to raise the sensitive issue of the Dalai Lama. 
Few topics could generate a more hair-trigger Chinese response. He criticized Mao for not having been tough enough during the uprisings in Tibet earlier that year, which had culminated in the Dalai Lama's flight to northern India. I will tell you what a guest should not say. The events in Tibet are your fault. You ruled in Tibet. You should have had your intelligence there and should have known about the plans and intentions of the Dalai Lama. After Mao objected, Khrushchev insisted on pursuing the subject by suggesting that the Chinese should have eliminated the Dalai Lama rather than let him escape. Khrushchev, as to the escape of the Dalai Lama from Tibet, if we had been in your place, we would not have let him escape. It would be better if he was in a coffin. And now he is in India, and perhaps will go to the USA. Is this to the advantage of the socialist countries? Mao, this is impossible. We could not arrest him then. We could not bar him from leaving, since the border with India is very extended, and he could cross it at any point. Khrushchev, it's not a matter of arrest. I am just saying that you were wrong to let him go. If you allow him an opportunity to flee to India, then what has Nehru to do with it? We believe that the events in Tibet are the fault of the Communist Party of China, not Nehru's fault. It was the last time Mao and Khrushchev were to meet. What is amazing is that for another ten years, the world treated Sino-Soviet tensions as a kind of family quarrel between the two communist giants, rather than the existential battle into which it was turning. Amidst these mounting tensions with the Soviet Union, Mao initiated another crisis with the United States. The Second Taiwan Strait Crisis on August 23, 1958, the People's Liberation Army began another massive shelling campaign of the offshore islands, accompanying its bombardment with propaganda salvos, calling for the liberation of Taiwan. After two weeks, it paused, and then resumed the shelling for a further 29 days. Finally, it settled into an almost whimsical pattern of shelling the islands on odd-numbered days of the month, with explicit warnings to their inhabitants and often avoiding sites of military significance, a maneuver Mao described to his senior associates as an act of political battle rather than conventional military strategy. Some of the factors at work in this crisis were familiar. Beijing again sought to test the limits of the American commitment to defend Taiwan. The shelling was also partly a reaction to American downgrading of the U.S.-China talks that had resumed after the last offshore island crisis. But the dominant impetus seems to have been a desire to stake a global role for China. Mao explained to his colleagues at a leadership retreat held at the outset of the crisis that the shelling of Kemoi and Matsu was China's reaction to American intervention in Lebanon where American and British troops had been landed during the summer. The bombardment of Jinmen, Kemoi, frankly speaking, was our turn to create international tension for a purpose. We intended to teach the Americans a lesson. America had bullied us for many years, so now that we had a chance, why not give it a hard time? Americans started a fire in the Middle East, and we started another in the Far East. We would see what they would do with it. 
In that sense, the shelling of the offshore islands was a blow in the contest with the Soviet Union. Soviet quiescence in the face of a strategic American move in the Middle East was being contrasted with Chinese ideological and strategic vigilance. Having demonstrated its military resolve, Mao explained China would now rejoin the talks with the United States and have available both an action arena and a talk arena. An application of the Sun Tzu principle of combative coexistence in its modern version of offensive deterrence. The most significant dimension of the shelling was not the taunting of the American superpower, so much as the challenge to China's formal ally, the Soviet Union. Khrushchev's policy of peaceful coexistence had made the Soviet Union, in Mao's eyes, a problematical ally and perhaps even a potential adversary. Thus, Mao seems to have reasoned, if the Taiwan Strait crisis were pushed to the brink of war, Khrushchev might have to choose between his new policy of peaceful coexistence and his alliance with China. In a sense, Mao succeeded. What conferred a special edge to Mao's maneuvers was that the Chinese policy in the Strait was being carried out ostensibly with the blessing of Moscow, so far as the world was concerned. For Khrushchev had visited Beijing three weeks before the second Taiwan Straits crisis, for the disastrous encounters over the submarine base issues, much as he had been there in the opening weeks of the first crisis four years earlier. In neither case had Mao revealed his intentions to the Soviets either before or during the visit. In each instance, Washington assumed, and Eisenhower alleged as much in a letter to Khrushchev, that Mao was not only acting with Moscow's support. But at its behest, Beijing was adding its Soviet ally to its diplomatic lineup against its will, and indeed without Moscow realizing that it was being used. A school of thought even holds that Mao invented the submarine base crisis to induce Khrushchev to come to Beijing to play his assigned role in that design. The second Taiwan Strait crisis paralleled the first, with the principal difference being. That the Soviet Union participated in issuing nuclear threats on behalf of an ally that was in the process of humiliating it. Roughly 1,000 people were killed or wounded in the 1958 bombardment. As in the first Taiwan Strait crisis, Beijing combined provocative evocations of nuclear war with a carefully calibrated operational strategy. Mao initially asked his commanders. To conduct the shelling in such a way as to avoid American fatalities, when they responded that no such guarantee was possible, he ordered them not to cross into the airspace over the offshore islands, to fire only on nationalist vessels, and not to return fire even if fired on by U.S. ships. Both before and during the crisis, PRC propaganda trumpeted the slogan "We must liberate Taiwan." But when the PLA's radio station undertook a broadcast announcing that a Chinese landing was imminent, and inviting nationalist forces to change sides and join the great cause of liberating Taiwan, Mao declared it a serious mistake. In John Foster Dulles, Mao met an adversary who knew how to play the game of combative coexistence. On September fourth, nineteen fifty-eight. Dulles reiterated the U.S. commitment to the defense of Taiwan, including related positions such as Kimoi and Matsu.
Dulles intuited China's limited aims, and in effect signaled American willingness to keep the crisis limited. Despite, however, what the Chinese communists say, and so far have done, it is not yet certain that their purpose is in fact to make an all-out effort to conquer by force Taiwan, Formosa, and the offshore islands. On September 5th, Zhou Enlai confirmed China's limited aims when he announced that Beijing's goal in the conflict was the resumption of U.S.-China talks at the ambassadorial level. On September 6th, the White House released a statement taking note of Zhou's remarks and indicating that the United States ambassador at Warsaw stood ready to represent the United States at resumed talks. With this exchange, the crisis should have been over. As if they were rehearsing a by now familiar play, the two sides had repeated time-worn threats, and had arrived at a familiar Deus ex machina, the resumption of ambassadorial talks. The only party in the triangular relationship who did not grasp what was taking place was Khrushchev, having heard Mao proclaim his imperviousness to nuclear war in Moscow the year previously and recently in Beijing. He was torn between contradictory fears of nuclear war and of the potential loss of an important ally if he failed to stand by China. His dedicated Marxism made it impossible for him to understand that his ideological ally had become a strategic adversary. Yet his knowledge of nuclear weapons was too great to integrate them comfortably into a diplomacy that constantly relied on threatening their use. When a rattled statesman confronts a dilemma, he is sometimes tempted to pursue every course of action simultaneously. Khrushchev sent his foreign minister, Andrei Gromyko, to Beijing to urge restraint, which he knew would not be well received, and to balance it to show the Chinese leaders a draft letter he proposed to send Eisenhower, threatening full support, implying nuclear support. For China, should the Taiwan Strait crisis escalate, the letter stressed that an attack on the Chinese People's Republic, which is a great friend, ally, and neighbor of our country, is an attack on the Soviet Union, and warned that the Soviet Union will do everything to defend the security of both states. The initiative failed with both addressees. Khrushchev's letter was politely rejected by Eisenhower on September 12th, welcoming the Chinese willingness to rejoin ambassadorial talks, and repeating Washington's insistence that Beijing renounce the use of force over Taiwan. Eisenhower urged Khrushchev to recommend restraint to Beijing. Oblivious to the reality that Khrushchev was an actor in a play written by others. Eisenhower implied collusion between Moscow and Beijing, noting that this intense military activity was begun on August 23rd, some three weeks after your visit to Beijing. In a public address delivered roughly simultaneously on September 11th, 1958, Eisenhower justified American involvement in the offshore islands in sweeping terms. The shelling of Kemoi and Matsu, he warned. Was analogous to Hitler's occupation of the Rhineland, Mussolini's occupation of Ethiopia, or, in a comparison that must have particularly vexed the Chinese, 
the Japanese conquest of Manchuria in the 1930s. Gromyko fared no better in Beijing. Mao responded to the draft letter by speaking openly of the possibility of nuclear war and the conditions under which the Soviets should retaliate with nuclear weapons against America. The threats were all the safer to make because Mao knew the danger of war had already passed. In his memoirs, Gromyko recounts being flabbergasted by Mao's bravado and quoted the Chinese leader as telling him, I suppose the Americans might go so far as to unleash a war against China. China must reckon with this possibility, and we do. But we have no intention of capitulating. If the USA attacks China with nuclear weapons, the Chinese armies must retreat from the border regions into the depths of the country. They must draw the enemy in deep so as to grip U.S. forces in a pincer inside China. Only when the Americans are right in the central provinces should you give them everything you've got. Mao was not asking for Soviet help until American forces had been drawn deep into China, which he knew was not going to happen in the already completed scenario. Gromyko's report from Beijing seems to have shocked Khrushchev. Though ambassadorial talks had already been agreed between Washington and Beijing, Khrushchev undertook two more steps to prevent nuclear war. To calm what he understood to be Beijing's fear of American invasion, he offered to send Soviet anti-aircraft units to Fujian. Beijing delayed a response and then accepted when the crisis was already over, provided that Soviet troops were placed under Chinese command, an improbable outcome. In a further demonstration of his nervousness, Khrushchev sent another letter to Eisenhower on September 19th, urging restraint but warning of the imminence of nuclear war. Except that China and the United States had, in fact, already settled the issue before Khrushchev's second letter arrived. In their meeting on October 3, 1959, Khrushchev had summed up the Soviet attitude during the Taiwan Strait crises to Mao. Between us, in a confidential way, we say that we will not fight over Taiwan, but for outside consumption, so to say. We state, on the contrary, that in case of an aggravation of the situation because of Taiwan, the USSR will defend the PRC. In its turn, the U.S. declare that they will defend Taiwan. Therefore, a kind of pre-war situation emerges. Khrushchev had enabled Mao to lure him into so futile a course by trying to be both clever and cynical. Especially when ultimate decisions of peace and war are involved, a strategist must be aware that bluffs may be called and must take into account the impact on his future credibility of an empty threat. On Taiwan, Mao used Khrushchev's ambivalence to entice him into making a nuclear threat that he had admitted he had no intention of carrying out, straining Moscow's relationship with the United States on behalf of an issue Khrushchev considered unimportant and of an allied leader who despised him. One can only imagine Mao's bemusement. He had goaded Moscow and Washington into threatening nuclear war against each other over some of the world's least vital geopolitical real estate in what was an essentially non-military piece of Chinese political theater. Moreover, Mao had done so at a time of his choosing, 
while China remained vastly weaker than the United States or the USSR, and in a manner that allowed him to claim a significant propaganda victory and rejoin Sino-U.S. ambassadorial talks from what his propaganda would claim was a position of strength. Having triggered the crisis and brought it to a close, Mao asserted that he had achieved his objectives. We fought this campaign, which made the United States willing to talk. The United States has opened the door. The situation seems to be no good for them, and they will feel nervous day in and day out if they don't hold talks with us now. Okay, then let's talk. For the overall situation, it is better to settle disputes with the United States through talks or peaceful means, because we are all peace-loving people. Zhou Enlai offered an even more complicated assessment. He saw the second Taiwan Strait crisis as a demonstration of the ability of the two Chinese parties to engage in tacit bargaining with each other across the barriers of opposing ideologies and even while the nuclear powers were fencing about nuclear war. Nearly 15 years later, Zhou recounted Beijing's strategy to Richard Nixon during the president's 1972 visit to Beijing. In 1958, then-Secretary Dulles wanted Chiang Kai-shek to give up the islands of Kemoi and Matsu so as to completely sever Taiwan and the mainland and draw a line there. Chiang Kai-shek was not willing to do this. We also advised him not to withdraw from Kemoi and Matsu. We advised him not to withdraw by firing artillery shells at them. That is, on odd days, we would shell them and not shell them on even days. And on holidays, we would not shell them. So they understood our intentions and didn't withdraw. No other means or messages were required. Just by this method of shelling, they understood. These brilliant achievements must be balanced against the global impact of the crisis, however. The ambassadorial talks deadlocked almost as soon as they resumed. Mao's ambiguous maneuvers, in fact, froze Sino-American relations into an adversarial posture from which they did not recover for over a decade. The notion that China was determined to eject the United States from the Western Pacific grew into an article of faith in Washington that deprived both sides of options for a more flexible diplomacy. The impact on the Soviet leadership was the opposite of what Mao had intended. Far from abandoning the policy of peaceful coexistence, Moscow was panicked by Mao's rhetoric and unsettled by his nuclear brinkmanship, his repeated musing on the likely positive effects of nuclear war for world socialism, and his failure to consult Moscow. In the aftermath of the crisis, Moscow suspended nuclear cooperation with Beijing, and in June of 1959, withdrew its commitment to provide China with a model atomic bomb. In 1960, Khrushchev withdrew Russian technicians from China and canceled all aid projects, claiming that we couldn't simply stand by, allowing some of our best qualified specialists, people who'd been trained in our own agriculture and industry, to receive nothing but harassment in exchange for their help. Internationally, Mao achieved another demonstration of China's hair-trigger response to perceived threats to its national security or territorial integrity. 
This would discourage attempts by China's neighbors to exploit the domestic upheaval into which Mao was about to plunge his society. But it also started a process of progressive isolation that would cause Mao to rethink his foreign policy a decade later. Chapter 7 A Decade of Crises During the first decade of the People's Republic of China's existence, its tough leaders navigated the decrepit empire they had conquered and turned it into a major power internationally. The second decade was dominated by Mao's attempt to accelerate the continuous revolution at home. The driving force of continuous revolution was Mao's maxim that moral and ideological vigor would overcome physical limitations. The decade began and ended amidst domestic turmoil that was ordered by China's own leaders. So encompassing was this crisis that China shut itself off from the rest of the world. Almost all its diplomats were recalled to Beijing. Two complete overhauls of China's domestic structure took place. First of the economy, with the great leap forward at the beginning of the decade, and second of the social order, with the cultural revolution at the end. Diplomacy was out of fashion, but war was not. When Mao felt the national interest challenged, in the midst of all its self-inflicted travail, China stood up once again to go to war at its furthest western frontier in the inhospitable Himalayas. The Great Leap Forward China's leaders had felt obliged by Khrushchev's secret speech to confront the issue of what, absent claims to a party chairman's godlike infallibility, constituted communist political legitimacy. In the months following the February 1956 speech, they seemed to feel their way toward making their own governance more transparent, presumably to avoid the need for periodic shocks of rectification. Worshipful references to Mao Zedong were deleted from the Communist Party constitution. The party adopted resolutions cautioning against rash advance in the economic field and suggesting that the main phase of class struggle would now draw to a close. But such a prosaic approach quickly clashed with Mao's vision of continuous revolution. Within months, Mao proposed an alternative route to political rectification. The Chinese Communist Party would invite debate and criticism of its methods and open up China's intellectual and artistic life to let 100 flowers bloom and 100 schools of thought contend. Mao's exact motives in issuing this call remain a subject of debate. The Hundred Flowers campaign has been explained as either a sincere call for the party to cut through its bureaucratic isolation to hear directly from the people, or a stratagem to coax enemies into identifying themselves. Whatever the motive, popular criticism quickly moved beyond suggestions for tactical adjustments into criticisms of the communist system. Students set up a democracy wall in Beijing. Critics protested the abuses of local officials and the privations imposed by Soviet-style economic policies. Some contrasted the first decade of communist rule unfavorably with the nationalist era that preceded it, 
Whatever the original intention, Mao never brooked a challenge to his authority for long. He executed a sharp about-face and justified it as an aspect of his dialectic approach. The Hundred Flowers movement was transformed into an anti-rightist campaign to deal with those who had misunderstood the limits of the earlier invitation to debate. A massive purge led to the imprisonment, re-education, or internal exile of thousands of intellectuals. At the end of the process, Mao stood again as China's unchallenged leader, having cleared the field of his critics. He used his preeminence to accelerate the continuous revolution, turning it into the great leap forward. The 1957 Moscow Conference of Socialist Parties had found Mao issuing a fateful claim about Chinese economic development. Responding to Khrushchev's prediction that the Soviet Union would surpass the United States economically in 15 years, Mao delivered an impromptu speech proclaiming that China would surpass Great Britain in steel production in the same interval. This comment soon acquired the status of a directive the 15-year steel target, subsequently reduced in a series of largely extemporaneous remarks to three years, was matched by a series of similarly ambitious agricultural goals. Mao was preparing to launch China's continuous revolution into a more active phase and to confront the Chinese people with its most stupendous challenge yet. Like many of Mao's undertakings, the Great Leap Forward combined aspects of economic policy, ideological exaltation, and foreign policy. For Mao, these were not distinct fields of endeavor, but interrelated strands of the grand project of the Chinese Revolution. In its most literal sense, the Great Leap Forward was designed to carry out Mao's sweeping ideas of industrial and agricultural development. Much of China's remaining private property and individual incentives were eliminated as the country was reorganized into people's communes, pooling possessions, food, and labor. Peasants were conscripted in quasi-military brigades for massive public works projects, many improvised. These projects had international as well as domestic implications, especially with respect to the conflict with Moscow. If successful, the Great Leap Forward would rebut Moscow's prescriptions of gradualism and effectively relocate the ideological center of the communist world to China. When Khrushchev visited Beijing in 1958, Mao insisted that China would achieve full communism before the Soviet Union did, while the Soviet Union had opted for a slower, more bureaucratic and less inspirational route of development. To Soviet ears, this was a shocking ideological heresy. But for once, Mao had set a challenge so far outside the realm of objective reality that even the Chinese people fell short of its achievement. The Great Leap Forward's production goals were exorbitant, and the prospect of dissent or failure was so terrifying that local cadres took to falsifying their output figures and reporting inflated totals to Beijing. Taking these reports literally, Beijing continued to export grain to the Soviet Union, in exchange for heavy industry and weaponry. Compounding the disaster was that Mao's steel targets had been implemented so literally as to encourage the melting down of useful implements as scrap to fulfill the quotas. Yet in the end, the laws of nature and economics could not be abrogated. 
and the Great Leap Forward's reckoning was brutal. From 1959 to 1962, China experienced one of the worst famines in human history, leading to the deaths of over 20 million people. Mao had again called on the Chinese people to move mountains, but this time the mountains had not moved. The Himalayan border dispute and the 1962 Sino-Indian War. By 1962, barely a decade after the establishment of the People's Republic of China, China had fought a war with the United States in Korea and engaged in two military confrontations involving the United States over the offshore islands of Taiwan. It had restored Chinese authority to imperial China's historic frontiers, with the exception of Mongolia and Taiwan, by reoccupying Xinjiang and Tibet. The famine triggered by the Great Leap Forward had barely been overcome. Nevertheless, Mao did not shrink from another military conflict when he considered China's definition of its historic borders was being challenged by India. The Sino-Indian border crisis concerned two territories located in the high Himalayas, in the trackless and largely uninhabitable region of plateaus, amidst forbidding mountains between Tibet and India. Fundamentally, the issue arose over the interpretation of colonial history. China claimed the imperial boundaries along the southern foothills of the Himalayas, encompassing what China considered South Tibet, but which India administered as a state of Arunachal Pradesh. The Indian perception was of relatively recent vintage. It had evolved out of the British effort to demarcate a dividing line with the Russian Empire advancing toward Tibet. The final relevant document was between Britain and Tibet, signed in 1914 that delineated the border in the eastern sector called the McMahon Line after the principal British negotiator. China had a long relationship with Tibet. The Mongols had conquered both Tibet and the Chinese agricultural heartland in the same wave of conquest in the 13th century, bringing them into close political contact. Later, the Qing Dynasty had regularly intervened in Tibet to expel the forces of other non-Han peoples, making incursions into Tibet from the north and west. Eventually, Beijing settled into a form of suzerainty, exercised by imperial residents in Lhasa. Beijing, since the Qing dynasty, treated Tibet as part of the all-under-heaven ruled by the Chinese emperor, and reserved the right to eject hostile interlopers. But distance and the Tibetans' nomadic culture made full sinicization impractical. In this manner, Tibetans were afforded a substantial degree of autonomy over their day-to-day -day life. By the end of the Qing dynasty in 1912, with China's governance severely strained, the Chinese governmental presence in Tibet had shrunk. Shortly after the collapse of the dynasty, British authorities in India convened a conference in the hill station of Simla with Chinese and Tibetan representatives, with the goal of demarcating the borders between India and Tibet. The Chinese government, having no effective force with which to contest these developments, objected on principle to the cession of any territory to which China had a historic claim. Beijing's attitude to the conference was reflected by its representative in Calcutta, then the seat of Britain's Indian administration, Lu Xingqi, 
Our country is at present in an enfeebled condition. Our external relations are involved and difficult, and our finances embarrassed. Nevertheless, Tibet is of paramount importance to both Sichuan and Yunnan provinces in southwest China, and we must exert ourselves to the utmost during this conference. The Chinese delegate at the conference solved their dilemma by initialing but not signing the resulting document. Tibetan and British delegates signed the document. In diplomatic practice, initialing freezes the text. It signifies that the negotiations have been concluded. Signing the document puts it into force. China maintained that the Tibetan representatives lacked the legal standing to sign the border agreement, since Tibet was part of China, and not entitled to the exercise of sovereignty. It refused to recognize the validity of Indian administration of the territory south of the McMahon Line, although it initially made no overt attempt to contest it. In the western sector, the disputed territory was known as Aksai Chin. It is nearly inaccessible from India, which is why it took some months for India to realize in 1955 that China was building a road across it linking Xinjiang and Tibet. The historical provenance of the region was also problematic. Britain claimed it on most official maps, though never seems to have administered it. When India proclaimed its independence from Britain, it did not proclaim its independence from British territorial claims. It included the Aksai Chin territory as well as the line demarcated by McMahon on all of its maps. Both demarcation lines were of strategic consequence. In the 1950s, a certain balance existed between the positions of the two sides. China viewed the McMahon Line as a symbol of British plans to loosen China's control over Tibet, or perhaps to dominate it. Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru claimed a cultural and sentimental interest in Tibet based on historical links between India's classical Buddhist culture and Tibetan Buddhism. But he was prepared to acknowledge Chinese sovereignty in Tibet so long as substantial autonomy was maintained. In pursuit of this policy, Nehru declined to support petitions to table the issue of Tibet's political status at the UN. But when the Dalai Lama fled in 1959 and was granted asylum in India, China began to treat the issue of demarcation lines increasingly in strategic terms. Zhou offered a deal. Trading Chinese claims in the eastern part of the line for Indian claims in the west. In other words, acceptance of the McMahon line as a basis for negotiations in return for recognition of Chinese claims to Aksai Chin. Almost all post-colonial countries have insisted on the borders within which they achieved independence. To throw them open to negotiations invites unending controversies and domestic pressure. On the principle that he was not elected to bargain away territory that he considered indisputably Indian, Nehru rejected the Chinese proposal by not answering it. In 1961, India adopted what it called the forward policy. To overcome the impression that it was not contesting the disputed territory, India moved its outposts forward, close to Chinese outposts previously established across the existing line of demarcation. 
Indian commanders were given the authority to fire on Chinese forces at their discretion, on the theory that the Chinese were intruders on Indian territory. They were reinforced in that policy after the first clashes in 1959, when Mao, in order to avoid a crisis, ordered Chinese forces to withdraw some 20 kilometers. Indian planners drew the conclusion that Chinese forces would not resist a forward movement by India; rather, they would use it as an excuse to disengage. Indian forces were ordered to, in the words of the official Indian history of the war, patrol as far forward as possible from our India's present position toward the international border, as recognized by us, and prevent the Chinese from advancing further. And also to dominate any Chinese posts already established on our territory. It proved a miscalculation. Mao at once canceled the previous withdrawal orders, but he was still cautious, telling a meeting of the Central Military Commission in Beijing, "Lack of forbearance in small matters upsets great plans. We must pay attention to the situation." It was not yet an order for military confrontation. Rather, a kind of alert to prepare a strategic plan. As such, it triggered the familiar Chinese style of dealing with strategic decisions: thorough analysis, careful preparation, attention to psychological and political factors, quest for surprise, and rapid conclusion. In meetings of the Central Military Commission and of top leaders, Mao commented on the Indian forward policy with one of his epigrams. A person sleeping in a comfortable bed is not easily roused by someone else's snoring. In other words, Chinese forces in the Himalayas had been too passive in responding to the Indian forward policy, which, in the Chinese perception, was taking place on Chinese soil. That, of course, was the essence of the dispute. Each side argued that its adversary had ventured onto its own soil. The Central Military Commission ordered an end of Chinese withdrawals, declaring that any new Indian outposts should be resisted by building Chinese outposts near them, encircling them. Mao summed it up: "You wave a gun, and I'll wave a gun. We'll stand face to face, and can each practice our courage." Mao defined the policy as armed coexistence. It was, in effect, the exercise of Wei Qi in the Himalayas. Precise instructions were issued. The goal was still declared to be to avoid a larger conflict. Chinese troops were not authorized to fire unless Indian forces came closer than 50 meters to their positions. Beyond that, military actions could be initiated only on orders from higher authorities. Indian planners noted that China had stopped withdrawals. But also Chinese restraint in firing, and concluded that another probe would do the trick. Rather than contest empty land, the goal became to push back the Chinese posts they already occupied. Since the two objectives of China's stated policy—to prevent further Indian advances and to avoid bloodshed—were not being met, Chinese leaders began to consider whether a sudden blow might force India to the negotiating table and end the tit for tat. In pursuit of that objective, Chinese leaders were concerned that the United States might use the looming Sino-Indian conflict to unleash Taiwan against the mainland. 
Another worry was that the American diplomacy seeking to block Hanoi's effort to turn Laos into a base area for the war in Vietnam might be a forerunner of an eventual American attack on southern China via Laos. Chinese leaders could not believe that America would involve itself to the extent it did in Indochina, even then before the major escalation had started, for local strategic stakes. The Chinese leaders managed to obtain reassurance on both points, in the process demonstrating the comprehensive way in which Chinese policy was being planned. The Warsaw Talks were the venue chosen to determine American intentions in the Taiwan Strait. The Chinese ambassador to these talks was recalled from vacation and instructed to ask for a meeting. There he claimed that Beijing had noted preparations in Taiwan for a landing on the mainland. The American ambassador, who had not heard of any such preparations, since they were not in fact taking place, was instructed to reply that the United States desired peace and, under present circumstances, would not support a nationalist offensive. The Chinese ambassador at these talks, Wang Bingnan, noted in his memoirs that this information played a very big role in Beijing's final decision to proceed with operations in the Himalayas. There is no evidence that the United States government asked itself what policy might have produced the request for a special meeting. It was the difference between a segmented and a comprehensive approach to policymaking. The Laotian problem solved itself. At the Geneva Conference of 1962, the neutralization of Laos and withdrawal of American forces from it removed Chinese concerns. With these reassurances in hand, Mao, in early October 1962, assembled Chinese leaders to announce the final decision, which was for war. We fought a war with old Chiang Kai-shek. We fought a war with Japan and with America. With none of these did we fear. And in each case we won. Now the Indians want to fight a war with us. Naturally, we don't have fear. We cannot give ground. Once we give ground, it would be tantamount to letting them seize a big piece of land equivalent to Fujian province. Since Nehru sticks his head out and insists on us fighting him, for us not to fight with him would not be friendly enough. Courtesy emphasizes reciprocity. On October 6th, a decision in principle was taken. The strategic plan was for a massive assault to produce a shock that would impel a negotiation or at least an end to the Indian military probing for the foreseeable future. Before the final decision to order the offensive, word was received from Khrushchev that in case of war, the Soviet Union would back China under the provisions of the Treaty of Friendship and Alliance of 1950. It was a decision totally out of keeping with Soviet-Chinese relations in the previous years and the neutrality heretofore practiced by the Kremlin on the issue of Indian relations with China. A plausible explanation is that Khrushchev, aware of the imminence of a showdown over Soviet deployment of nuclear weapons to Cuba, wanted to assure himself of Chinese support in the Caribbean crisis. He never returned to the offer once the Cuban crisis was over. The Chinese attack took place in two stages. A preliminary offensive starting on October 20th, lasting four days, followed by a massive assault in the middle of November, which reached the foothills of the Himalayas in the vicinity of the traditional imperial demarcation line. At this point, 
the PLA stopped and returned to its starting point well behind the line it was claiming. The disputed territory has remained disputed until today, but neither side has sought to enforce its claims beyond the existing lines of control. The Chinese strategy was similar to that of the offshore islands crises. China did not conquer any territory in the 1962 Sino-Indian War, although it continued to claim the territory south of the McMahon Line. This may have reflected a political judgment or a recognition of logistical realities. The conquered eastern sector territory could be held only over seriously extended supply lines across forbidding terrain. At the end of the war, Mao had withstood, and in this case prevailed in, another major crisis, even while a famine was barely ended in China. It was in a way a replay of the American experience in the Korean War, an underestimation of China by its adversary, unchallenged intelligence estimates about Chinese capabilities, and coupled with grave errors in grasping how China interprets its security environment and how it reacts to military threats. At the same time, the 1962 war added another formidable adversary for China at a moment when relations with the Soviet Union had gone beyond the point of no return, or the Soviet offer of support proved as fleeting as the Soviet nuclear presence in Cuba. As soon as military clashes in the Himalayas escalated, Moscow adopted a posture of neutrality. To rub salt into Chinese wounds, Khrushchev justified his neutrality with the proposition that he was promoting the loathed principle of peaceful coexistence. A December 1962 editorial in the People's Daily, the official newspaper of the Chinese Communist Party, angrily noted that this marked the first time a communist state had not sided with another communist state against a bourgeois country. For a communist, the minimum requirement is that he should make a clear distinction between the enemy and ourselves, that he should be ruthless towards the enemy and kind to his own comrades. The editorial added a somewhat plaintive call for China's allies to examine their conscience and ask themselves what has become of their Marxism-Leninism and what has become of their proletarian internationalism. By 1964, the Soviets dropped even the pretense of neutrality. Referring to the Cuban Missile Crisis, Mikhail Suslov, a member of the Politburo and party ideologist, accused the Chinese of aggression against India at a moment of maximum difficulty for the Soviet Union. It is a fact that precisely at the height of the Caribbean crisis, the Chinese People's Republic extended the armed conflict on the Chinese-Indian border. No matter how the Chinese leaders have tried since then to justify their conduct at the time, they cannot escape the responsibility for the fact that through their actions they, in effect, aided the most reactionary circles of imperialism. China, having barely overcome a vast famine, now had declared adversaries on all frontiers. The Cultural Revolution At this moment of potential national emergency, Mao chose to smash the Chinese state and the Communist Party. He launched what he hoped would prove a final assault on the stubborn remnants of traditional Chinese culture, from the rubble of which he prophesied would rise a new, ideologically pure generation better equipped to safeguard the revolutionary cause from its domestic and foreign foes. 
He propelled China into the decade of ideological frenzy, vicious factional politics, and near-civil war known as the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. No institution was spared from the ensuing waves of upheaval. Across the country, local governments were dissolved in violent confrontations with the masses, urged on by propaganda from Beijing. Distinguished Communist Party and People's Liberation Army leaders, including leaders of the Revolutionary Wars, were purged and subjected to public humiliation. China's education system, so long the backbone of the Chinese social order, ground to a halt, with classes suspended indefinitely, so that the younger generation could wander the country and follow Mao's exhortation to learn revolution by making revolution. Many of these suddenly unconstrained youths joined factions of the Red Guards, youth militias bonded by ideological fervor, operating above the law and outside of and often in explicit opposition to ordinary institutional structures. Mao endorsed their efforts with vague but incendiary slogans such as, to rebel is justified, and bombard the headquarters. He approved their violent attacks on the existing Communist Party bureaucracy and traditional social mores and encouraged them not to fear disorder as they fought to eradicate the dreaded four olds, old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits that, in Maoist thinking, had kept China weak. The People's Daily fanned the flames by editorializing in praise of lawlessness, an explicit government-sanctioned rebuke to China's millennial tradition of harmony and order. The result was a spectacular human and institutional carnage, as one by one China's organs of power and authority, including the highest ranks of the Communist Party, succumbed to the assaults of teenage ideological shock troops. China a civilization heretofore known for its respect for learning and erudition, became an upside-down world, with children turning on parents, students brutalizing teachers and burning books, and professionals and high officials sent down to farms and factories to learn revolutionary practice from illiterate peasants. Scenes of cruelty unfolded across the country, as Red Guards and citizens allied to them, some simply picking a faction at random in the hope of surviving the storm, turned their fury on any target that might conceivably augur a return of the old feudal order to China. That some of these targets were individuals who had been dead for centuries did not diminish the fury of the assault. Revolutionary students and teachers from Beijing descended on Confucius's home village, vowing to put an end to the old sage's influence on Chinese society once and for all by burning ancient books, smashing memorial tablets, and razing the grave sites of Confucius and his descendants. In Beijing, Red Guard assaults destroyed 4,922 of the capital's 6,843 designated places of cultural or historical interest. The forbidden city itself was reportedly saved only by Zhou Enlai's personal intervention. A society traditionally governed by an elite of Confucian literati now looked to uneducated peasants as its source of wisdom. Universities were closed. 
Anyone identified as an expert was suspect, professional competence being a dangerously bourgeois concept. China's diplomatic posture came unhinged. The world was treated to the nearly incomprehensible sight of a China raging with indiscriminate fury against the Soviet bloc, the Western powers, and its own history and culture. Chinese diplomats and support staffs abroad harangued the citizens of their host countries with calls to revolution and lectures on Mao Zedong fought. In scenes reminiscent of the Boxer Uprising 70 years earlier, throngs of Red Guards attacked foreign embassies in Beijing, including a sack of the British mission complete with the beating and molestation of its fleeing staff. When the British Foreign Secretary wrote to Foreign Minister Marshal Chen Yi, suggesting that Britain and China, while maintaining diplomatic relations, withdraw their mission and personnel from each other's capital for the time being, he was met by silence. The Chinese foreign minister was himself being struggled against and could not reply. Eventually, all but one of China's ambassadors, the able and ideologically unimpeachable Huang Hua in Cairo, and roughly two-thirds of embassy staffs were called home for re-education in the countryside or participation in revolutionary activities. China was actively embroiled in disputes with the governments of several dozen countries during this time. It had genuinely positive relations with just one, the People's Republic of Albania. Emblematic of the Cultural Revolution was the Little Red Book of Mao quotations, compiled in 1964 by Lin Biao, later designated as Mao's successor, and killed while fleeing the country in an obscure airline crash, allegedly after attempting a coup. All Chinese were required to carry a copy of the Little Red Book. Red guards brandishing copies conducted seizures of public buildings throughout China under the authorization, or at least toleration, of Beijing, violently challenging the provincial bureaucracies. But the Red Guards were no more immune to the dilemma of revolutions turning on themselves than the cadres they were supposed to purify. Bonded by ideology rather than formal training, the Red Guards became factions pursuing their own ideological and personal preferences. Conflict between them became so intense that by 1968, Mao officially disbanded the Red Guards and placed loyal party and military leaders in charge of re-establishing provincial governments. A new policy of sending down a generation of youths to remote parts of the countryside to learn from the peasantry was enunciated. By this point, the military was the last major Chinese institution whose command structure remained standing, and it assumed roles far outside its ordinary competencies. Military personnel ran the gutted government ministries, tended fields, and administered factories, all in addition to their original mission of defending the country from attack. The immediate impact of the Cultural Revolution was disastrous. After the death of Mao, the assessment by the second and third generations of leaders, almost all of whom were victims at one time or another, has been condemnatory. Deng Xiaoping, the principal leader of China from 1979 to 1991, argued that the Cultural Revolution had nearly destroyed the Communist Party as an institution and wrecked its credibility at least temporarily. In recent years, as personal memories have faded, another perspective is beginning to make a tentative appearance. 
This view acknowledges the colossal wrongs committed during the Cultural Revolution, but it begins to inquire whether perhaps Mao raised an important question, even if his answer to it proved disastrous. The problem Mao is said to have identified is the relationship of the modern state, especially the communist state, to the people it governs. In largely agricultural and even incipient industrial societies, governance concerns issues within the capacity of the general public to understand. Of course, in aristocratic societies, the relevant public is limited. But whatever the formal legitimacy, some tacit consensus by those who are to carry out directives is needed. Unless governance is to be entirely by imposition, which is usually unsustainable over historic period. A challenge of the modern period is that issues have become so complex that the legal framework is increasingly impenetrable. The political system issues directives, but the execution is left to an ever larger degree to bureaucracies separated from both the political process and the public, whose only control is periodic elections, if that. Even in the United States, major legislative acts often comprise thousands of pages that, to put it mildly, only the fewest legislators have read in detail. Especially in communist states, bureaucracies operate in self-contained units with their own rules, in pursuance of procedures they often define for themselves. Fissures open up between the political and the bureaucratic class and between both of those and the general public. In this manner, a new Mandarin class risks emerging by bureaucratic momentum. Mao's attempt to solve the problem in one grand assault nearly wrecked Chinese society. A recent book by the Chinese scholar and government advisor Hu Angang argues that the Cultural Revolution, while a failure, set the stage for Deng's reforms of the late 1970s and 1980s, who now proposes using the Cultural Revolution as a case study for ways in which the decision-making systems in China's existing political system could become more democratic, scientific, and institutionalized. Was there a lost opportunity? In retrospect, one wonders whether the United States was in a position to start a dialogue with China, perhaps a decade earlier than it did. Could the turmoil in China have become the starting point for a serious dialogue? In other words, were the 1960s a lost opportunity for Sino-American rapprochement? Could the opening to China have occurred earlier? In truth, the fundamental obstacle to a more imaginative American foreign policy was Mao's concept of continuous revolution. Mao was determined at this stage to forestall any moment of calm. Attempts at reconciliation with the capitalist arch-enemy were not conceivable while the blood feud with Moscow revolved around Mao's adamant rejection of Khrushchev's commitment to peaceful coexistence. There were some tentative gropings on the American side toward a more flexible perception of China. In October 1957, Senator John F. Kennedy published an article in Foreign Affairs remarking on the fragmentation of authority within the Soviet orbit and calling American policy in Asia probably too rigid. He argued that the policy of not recognizing the People's Republic should be continued 
but that America should be prepared to revisit the brittle conception of a shiftless totalitarian China as circumstances developed. He counseled that we must be very careful not to straightjacket our policy as a result of ignorance and fail to detect a change in the objective situation when it comes. Kennedy's perception was subtle, but by the time he became president, the next change in Mao's dialectic was in the opposite direction, toward more hostility, not less, and toward the increasingly violent elimination of domestic opponents and countervailing institutional structures, not moderate reform. In the years immediately following Kennedy's article, Mao launched the anti-rightist campaign in 1957, a second crisis in the Taiwan Strait in 1958, which he described as an attempt to teach the Americans a lesson, and the Great Leap Forward. When Kennedy became president, China undertook a military attack in its border conflict with India, a country that the Kennedy administration had conceived of as offering an Asian alternative to communism. These were not the signs of conciliation and change for which Kennedy had advised Americans to stay attuned. The Kennedy administration did offer a humanitarian gesture to alleviate China's precarious agricultural condition during the famine triggered by the Great Leap Forward. Described as an effort to secure food for peace, the offer required, however, a specific Chinese request acknowledging a serious desire for assistance. Mao's commitment to self-reliance precluded any admission of dependence on foreign assistance. China, its representative at the Warsaw Ambassadorial Talks replied, was overcoming its difficulties by its own efforts. <laughs>